Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Welcome into this edition of RP3 and Company. We are having some technical issues. Raymond is uh, planning to be broadcasting live from Dallas today, as we've been discussing on the show this week. But we are uh, working to get some things resolved. So for now, it'll be me. This is Dawson Iserlo, your producer, back here in the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette. A reminder, Evco Development is a civil construction company that specializes in new multifamily construction. So we have a lot lined up today, and we we will hopefully get RP3 live from Dallas at some point here this morning, and that is the plan. But for now, um, look, we've got a lot to discuss anyway. LSU women's basketball team is in the Final Four tonight in Dallas. Of course, um, that is going to be... A huge game and a chance for them to do something they haven't done. That's reached a title game in the NCAA tournament behind Coach Kim Mulkey. So we will, of course, be discussing and previewing that one. Um, We will talk about the Astros. It was opening day yesterday, and it did not go the way the Houston Astros would have liked their title defense to begin. So we'll touch on that a little bit. Um, a lot going on as well with the NBA down the stretch here. And the New Orleans Pelicans went on the road and got themselves a nice victory. So the New Orleans Pelicans um, still trying to fight their way up the Western Conference standings. They're back into a tie for seventh. So we will talk. I got to see a good bit of that game last night. Nikola Jokic was out, but the Pelicans handled their business on the road, which is something that they've struggled with this year. Uh, also, we had LSU baseball begin their series with Tennessee. That's going to be a fun series. It was a great game last night. Um, And so we will get a chance to talk about that a little bit. Well, also, guest-wise, we will talk to James Yasko about those Houston Astros and that Game 1 loss to start the season. We'll see uh, where his level of concern is. Of course, it's one game. It's going to be fine. But we'll get James Yasko of the Lima Time Time podcast's opinion on the Astros and what they're going to be able to do moving forward here to start the season. Um, We will also talk with Dale Tafoya about his new book. So that will be coming up. Uh, in the third hour, and we'll talk to Scott Rabelais. So uh, all that coming up, we'll talk to him, of course, get his perspective on the LSU women and uh, what they're going to try to do tonight and hopefully moving into the weekend for them as they will look to move on to the championship game. So all that coming up for you and more here on RP3 and Company. Let's go ahead and start with the New Orleans Pelicans because, you know, it's been a tumultuous season. For the Pelicans in some ways, but there's been a lot of ups and there's been a lot of downs. We know that. And they have kind of put themselves in a position here down the stretch to where everything they still want to accomplish is in front of them. And we know that Um, they have a chance to even get up into the sixth seed and get out of the playing tournament, something that seemed uh, impossible just a few weeks ago. And they went on the road. And look, it was a tough loss at Golden State a couple of nights ago. We've documented that. They had the big lead early on. They felt like they could really, you know, pull something off there. 
they kind of collapse under the pressure a little bit. Golden State does what championship teams do, and that's, you know, beat you on their home court. So this was, you know, an opportunity maybe for a letdown game, playing, uh, you know, first-place team in the Western Conference on the road, following up a difficult road game. But they caught a little bit of a break in that a, you know, the potential MVP, Nikola Jokic, missed this game. So that opened up an opportunity. But, of course, Denver's a very good basketball team regardless. And so it was going to be difficult either way. Um, But the, the Pelicans stepped up to the task, quite simply. And, you know, this was a performance that we've, we haven't seen a whole lot of this, you know, and this is, again, separate from that stretch where they were the best team in the Western Conference for the first few months of the season, right? Uh, we haven't seen as complete. How about the defensive effort? Now, look, clearly Denver was a little bit shaken offensively without Jokic. I think that's part of this, right? Um, they did not look good on offense that first quarter. I mean, wow. You talk about the NBA and, and kind of the lack of defense that's played throughout the league at times. Um, I think part of it can certainly be on good defense, but there was some ugly offense early in this game. It was 21-17 to 17 after one quarter, and I kind of remember I was, I was watching this game and kind of a little bit distracted, looked up and saw it was 21-17, and I was like, wait a minute, how is the first quarter over? There's no way. Like I, I literally thought the clock might have had a little bit of mishap. I was like, maybe there's four minutes left. No, that was the end of the first quarter, and... The Pelicans end up holding the Denver Nuggets to 88 points in this entire basketball game. Uh, They held Denver to 4 of 28 from three-point shooting, 14%. So uh, it was an impressive performance defensively for the Pelicans, and Brandon Ingram continues to kind of elevate his game. You know, we said a while back it felt like Ingram, when he came back from his injury, sometimes he was putting up numbers, but it wasn't necessarily leading to team victories. Well, how about this? He ends up now starting to put these triple-doubles together where he's also facilitating for his teammates. And that's the biggest difference I see with Brandon Ingram right now. Not only is he still getting his, and of course, he got his. He had 31 points on 13-22 shooting. But now he's facilitating as well, and he's working the offense into a rhythm. And he's being that you know, ball-handling, scoring first, but also looking to pass and find other guys type of player. And he's playing at an elite level, plain and simple. And the Pelicans, you know, now are going to have a chance moving forward to do what they want to do because of that. C.J. McCollum was also outstanding in this game. 23 points on 6 of 8 three-point shooting. So uh, McCollum was big. And I I think moving forward, you know, if, if they're going to get that type of production from C.J. McCollum and it's in hand with what B.I.'s doing, and again... Let's not get ahead of ourselves, but you are supposed to get Zion back soon. We saw Zion in the pregame uh, doing some things, working out with the team, and you know had a couple of nice dunks. Everybody's getting excited about that. I am too, trying to contain the enthusiasm because, of course, we've been down this road before, and we know that that doesn't mean that Zion's going to play. We have to make sure the medical team clears him and everything like that. We should be getting our next Zion update at some point early to middle of next week, so all that considered, you've got an opportunity to do something special here if you're the Pelicans, and you all it all happens on your home court in the next couple of weeks. So that's another big thing to look at. It's certainly not going to be easy, and they do not face another opponent below 500. Not even really close, other than the Timberwolves. I mean, everybody's at least five games above 500. It starts with the Clippers, a team you just beat, a team that's kind of dealing with some injuries, trying to get through some things now. The Clippers went on the road last night and beat the Grizzlies by nine. It was Russell Westbrook who had 36 points. They got 27 from Robert Covington off the bench. So 
even without Paul George, even without Kawhi Leonard, the Clippers are finding a way to win games. As a, as a matter of fact, since the Pelicans beat them on the road last Saturday, they've beaten both the Bulls and Grizzlies. So they've got another game against the Grizzlies tonight. We'll see if the Clippers follow that up. But the interesting thing about that matchup is not only is that the next team the Pelicans face, but that's one of the teams the Pelicans are trying to run down in the Western Conference. Now, they're two games back of them, but when you throw in that they have a game against them, a chance to pull them one game closer, you know that's something that the Pelicans have an opportunity, perhaps, to try to catch the Clippers and get out of the play-in tournament, um, which would really kind of change, I think, the perspective of the season change the optics heading into the offseason, whether you win that first-round series or not. If you're able to pull yourselves out of the play-in tournament after how bleak it looked for some time without Zion and all that, and you know if Zion comes back and just plays at some sort of level that makes you feel confident heading into next season with his health and everything surrounding that, it would be enormous. Now, the Clippers aren't the only team the Pelicans can catch in order to achieve that goal. Golden State is only one game in front of them, but the problem there is I just think Golden State's woken up right they, they're in that mindset now that championship teams kind of figure out towards the end of the season and not to say that they haven't been trying to win games all year I think they have but I do think there's been a bit of a complacency coming off yet another title so many aging you know aging player I, I shouldn't say aging players but veteran players on that roster um, it feels like Golden State's kind of heating up to me and so you know also taking a look at Golden State's schedule down the stretch uh, they have a game against the Spurs they have a game against the Thunder, and they have a game against the Blazers. So that's three of their last five games. Um, I think Golden State's going to be safely out of the playing tournament, um, as, as, as me- meaning they're a top-six seed in the playoffs. So for the Pelicans, I really think the Clippers is the team you can catch. I think that's your opportunity. And, of course, as I mentioned, you get a chance to play them on Saturday and pull yourself within a game of them. So I I think that's a great opportunity. Look, I was impressed. You know, I've gone back and forth with this team, and and you you all have heard me talk about each side of that on this show and on Footnotes as well. Um, But overall, I just think they're moving in the right direction. Um, And I think that it's been very refreshing to see what Brandon Ingram has done, to kind of see what he's taken on, the leadership role, at least on the court, that he is really exhibiting right now is crucial to their success moving forward. And, you know, I, I we've kind of outlined that schedule moving, you know, in the next couple of weeks, but it's the Clippers, then it's the Kings. Of course, they're playing very good basketball. Then the Grizzlies, then you have the Knicks, and then you go on the road for your last game. So four straight home games, and then that last road game against Minnesota. Of course, Minnesota might be a team you're jockeying for position with. You're right now tied at 39-38 and 38 with them, tied for the seventh spot in the West, so that potentially could be a game to, you know, see who has the higher seed. It could be a game to see who's in the playing tournament at all, although I don't think it's going to get to that point. Thanks to the Pelicans, you know, good play in the last few weeks. I think they've kind of, I wouldn't say solidified their position because Dallas is only a couple of games back, but I feel pretty good about their chances of staying in the playing tournament. But at the same time, they're going to have to win some of those games. Like, there's no excuses around it, and there's no other ways about it. They have to go on their home court, defend home court, and beat a couple of really good teams. You know, whether it's, look, whether it's beating the Clippers uh, and the Grizzlies, and maybe you lose a couple of the other ones, um, whether it's beating the Kings and, you know, finding a way to beat Minnesota. I think, you obviously, you have to win at least two of those games, two of the five. 
Um, I think three of the five makes you feel pretty good about your spot. And if you're able to win four of five, four out of those five, including the one against the Clippers, of course, then I think you have a chance to potentially get up to that number six spot, avoid the first round of the play-in tournament, um, and, and really feel good about yourself. You know, feel good about what you've accomplished and, and maybe have a chance to, to really do something in this Western Conference. So, you know, that, that's one of the kind of real exciting things about what's in front of this New Orleans Pelicans team. And last night was a step in the right direction. A bit of a surprise how well they played, I will say that. I know Jokic was out, so you can't take too much from it. Um, but going on the road, again, how bad the Pelicans have been on the road this year, how good Denver's been on at home this year, those things kind of working in tandem, um, and you're still able to not only win the game but dominate. It wasn't really ever close. And, you know, look, part of that's Denver had a rough shooting night for sure, but um, overall impressed with what they were able to do there. So um, that is something to monitor. And, um, you know, I, I think – if this Pelicans team is going to do something that we maybe weren't expecting a few weeks ago, I do think it involves Zion returning. Um, I think Zion has to come back. He has to give you something. And um, hopefully that's next week when he when he gets going with that. So we'll take a timeout. Still efforting RP3, hopefully getting him live from Dallas at some point. Um, but for now, we will take a timeout, come back, and talk a little bit about the Astros season opener. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update. Presented by Tibbs Trailers here on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back into this Friday edition of RP3 and Company. Um, once again, we're still efforting some technical difficulties with Dallas and the live appearance of RP3, of course, that we were planning to have here on this Friday. Of course, he is planning to be live from Dallas for the Women's Final Four in LSU, but um, for now, we're still kind of working on some of those issues. So I'm going to start with the Astros here. And, you know, it's so opening day. It's an exciting time across Major League Baseball, right? You have, um, again, the first opening day since, I believe, 1968 in which every Major League Baseball team was in action on the same day. That was cool. Um, there was no shortage of baseball yesterday, and I also like the way they do it, mostly day games on opening day. You know, they, there's not a whole lot of tradition that remains uh, in Major League Baseball. Some of the things, I guess there's some, but not everything they used to do. But they do still have mostly day games, so that was really cool to see. And then a couple of feature night games as well, including the Houston Astros. And look, the Astros have been historically good on opening day in the last decade. They, In fact, they had won 10 straight opening days. And that's not something that's easy to do, and that's not necessarily something that, you know, I think it's more coincidence than anything, right? You know, uh, that that they've done that and that they've been able to accomplish it. Now, obviously, a lot of those teams were very good teams uh, that the Astros had that were AL championship teams and World Series contenders and things like that. But 
If you go back, of course, to the beginning of that winning streak of opening day games, there was a couple of bad teams in there, um, or at least not great teams, back into the 2014 and, and those types of teams that weren't quite ready to compete on the level that we think of the Astros today. So an impressive number, nonetheless, going into last night. Of course, the Astros unveiled their new gold uniforms, gold accented uniforms that are related to the World Series title. Um, and it was a really, it was an opening day style baseball game. Two aces on the hill, Framber Valdez going for the Astros, who now steps into that fully full-blown ace role. Of course, I think at times he was the ace of the staff last year um, and has had experience being their number one guy when Verlander has been hurt or, or just different things like that. But Framber comes in as the guy, and you're facing off against Dylan Cease, who's a guy, uh, you know, a young pitcher who's had some success and has kind of established himself. And, you know, the White Sox need big things out of this year to try to do what they want to do. And they were both on the mound, and they both pitched great. They were both very effective. And, you know, one thing we've talked about heading into this opening day is that the Astros are going to be missing some of their bats early on in the season. Of course, we know Jose Altuve is not going to play um, any time in the next few weeks, and the Astros are hoping to get him back as soon as possible. But also Michael Brantley. Not quite ready for opening day. So, you know, two of the, I mean, look, two of the best contact hitters on this team, two of the best, you know, guys at putting the ball in play, two of the best pure hitters on the roster, not in the lineup. So that hurts. And um, it is just one game. So I really, you don't really draw anything significant from it. But um, Dylan Cease was outstanding against that lineup that, you know, still features Jeremy Pena and Alex Bregman and Jordan Alvarez and Jose Abreu and Kyle Tucker and those types of guys. So um, Cease was outstanding. You look at his final line score, and that's 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 where you really look into this and go, wow, six and a third innings for Dylan Cease, two hits. That's it, just two hits. One run, it was earned. Ten strikeouts and no walks for Dylan Cease. I mean, just an old school, you know, not putting anybody on base via the free pass, um, the 27-year-old right-hander was just absolutely outstanding. And, you know, look, he's coming off of the best season in his career, undoubtedly. You know, he had a 2.20 ERA a year ago, um, started 32 games. He He's kind of established himself, and, you know, I don't know if he got a ton of recognition or, or hype coming into this season. You know, uh, certainly a respected guy, but not being talked about as some of the best, you know, one of the best pitchers in the American League. I think he's got a chance to be that and more. I mean, I think he's a legitimate Cy Young candidate. And what I saw last night, you know, I, I was down on the White Sox coming into the season. And I, I don't, again, I don't ever want to take too much from one game. It's baseball. There's 161 more of them. But. I did kind of mention yesterday, if they're going to be successful, I think Dylan Cease is a big part of that. He's got to be great, and so far, so good for them. So, he was impressive. On the other hand, the Astros' bats um, just never got things going. As I mentioned, they didn't, you know, the thing is, they didn't have a ton of base hits, but also, as I mentioned, they weren't getting on base via the free pass because Cease was so effective. So, when you're not getting on base and you're not, getting base hits, uh, you don't have a lot of opportunities to score runs. And that is, uh, you know, kind of what happened in this game. On the other hand, though, Framber Valdez was also very good. So that is something that you're going to take away from this. You know, I don't think there was much doubt, but maybe there was some concern. Like, is Framber ready to step into that bona fide ace 
you know, you get the ball every fifth day. You're going to pitch, you know, the season opener. You're going to pitch game one of the playoffs. I don't think we're worried about that because, again, we saw him do that in the postseason even. We saw him be the guy who they handed the ball to. Um, but he was outstanding as well. He goes five innings. He gives up six hits, so he scatters six hits, um, but no runs, four strikeouts, and no walks. So how about this? In a day and age where the walk has become so prevalent in Major League Baseball, you know, we've talked about that, kind of the ball in play, the lack of balls in play, and some of the things that the MLB is actually doing to try to increase, you know, balls that are put in play. No walks combined for these two starting pitchers. And uh, the Astros do end up, Walking three batters as a pitching staff, or no, rather walking only one batter as a pitching. It was just Ryan Presley, and unfortunately that walk came back to bite them in the ninth inning. But they only walk one guy. They only drew two walks, so the White Sox pitchers only walked two guys. So that was something about opening day. The pitchers, you know, sometimes they say pitching's ahead of hitting, and it certainly looked like that last night. Uh, the pitchers, who of course pitchers get to come into spring training a little bit earlier, they report earlier, they get throwing, and then you know. So sometimes that's how it plays out. But this was an opening day, kind of classic opening day matchup where uh, my best against your best, and let's see what happens. And last night the White Sox were a little bit better. Now let's talk about the way they got there, though, because this was a 0-0 game into the seventh inning. Um, And so the Astros go into the bottom of the seventh. First of all, they got out of a, a nice jam in the top of the seventh. The bases were loaded. They get Eloy Jimenez to strike out swinging. So they come to the bottom. And they end up loading up the bases, and a wild pitch from Aaron Bummer scores you out on Alvarez. So they end up scoring their first run of the game, not even on a base hit, but on a wild pitch. So they have a one nothing lead, and, and I was kind of thinking, well, this is the Astros on opening day. They find a way to win games. That's really all there is to it. They're going to win this one one nothing, And that's not the case because with two outs in the top of the eighth, Yasmani Grandal hits a solo homer to tie things up. So you're at 1-1. And you head to the ninth inning, Ryan Presley on. Not a safe situation, of course, but uh, wanting to get your best guy in in the ninth inning. And he just wasn't really sharp. It was, uh, you know, uh, it started out with a walk, then a single from Luis Robert, and then Andrew Vaughn hit a double into the gap, and that scored a couple of runs, and that was really all she wrote. Now, the Astros did make a run in the ninth inning. Jordan Alvarez, of course, comes through with a solo homer. His first of the year and and hopefully first of what's going to be many home runs for Jordan this season. Uh, The hand injury didn't seem to be bothering him on that swing as he deposited into the upper deck. So you got it to 3-2 and from there, you know, they end up just not being able to put anything else together. And the young man for the White Sox, Lopez, that came out of the bullpen was throwing over 100 miles an hour. There was a couple really, really competitive spirited at-bats though. And that's kind of one of the things I was really impressed with. Um, the Astros didn't end up coming back to win this game, but they were battling at the plate. And, you know, they had a couple of really tough at-bats where they were fouling pitches off. Bregman had one of them and ended up in outs. But they seem like a type of team that's not going to be held to four hits very often this season, right? And we know how good the lineup is, and this is without Altuve and Brantley, so keep that in mind. But um, they did come up short, so uh, Chicago gets off to a 1-0 start. The Astros long streak of winning opening day games comes to a close, and they'll have to try to start a new one next year. Um, but for now, they move forward in that series. Have to, We'll have to win a couple of games here to try and you know, pick up that series victory, but we will see where the Astros go from here. We'll take a timeout. When we come back, we will take a look uh, at that LSU Women's Final Four game, give my kind of thoughts a little bit about the matchup, 
um, and just kind of give my first kind of set the stage for what we should expect in that one. Uh, that's coming up next right here on RP3 and Company. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back into a special Friday edition of RP3 and Company. Dawson Eisler back with you here, and I believe that we have gotten things figured out, and we now have RP3 live from Dallas. <laughs> oh, thankfully, thankfully, yes. Um, you know, you know when you have things figured out, D'Lo, and you go, I got this all figured out. Uh-huh. And I've done these shows remotely from hotel rooms over and over again. <laughs> and I got things set up early last night. I knew it was going to be a rough thing this morning because I sat down. I had some problems getting the equipment to work. Then the backdrop came undone and hit me in the back of my head. <laughs> so I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay, all right, this is going to work, this is going to work, but no, I'm up and running. Thank you for holding things down there back in the Evco Development Studios, and whew, we, are, we are here now, brother. We are here Absolutely. now because we are broadcasting live from downtown Dallas, just a stone's throw away from where the Final Four will be played tonight. LSU, Vitek, of course, is game number one. And then South Carolina versus Iowa, mainly the Gamecocks versus Caitlin Clark game, will be the nightcap here. Of course, the men's Final Four is down in Houston, and we'll talk about that as well today. Now, I know as I was listening in on the mobile app, you were holding it down about those Pellies. And um, I watched the game. And I know the big fella was out. I get that. I understand that. But that was quite the bounce-back game for your, the New Orleans Pelicans last night. Yeah, it really was. And that's kind of what I led the show with is that is the defensive effort. And, and, look, Denver didn't look very good offensively. It looked like they clearly missed Jokic, and maybe they weren't necessarily prepared, um, as prepared as they should have been without him. But – it was still a good effort, and the Pelicans, look, their efficiency ratings defensively, um, even season long, even considering that bad stretch they had, are still pretty high, um, which I, I, you know, I feel like it's, it's weird in the NBA because of the level of play around the league. It's, it's not necessarily easy to see what good defense looks like or even know what good defense looks like. I'm not sure I know what it looks like, but the metrics tell you the Pelicans are pretty decent defensively, and that was a dominant performance, and... If Brandon Ingram's able to facilitate and score the way he's now done, where he's getting triple doubles, he's not just putting up 40 points and then you know having two assists. He's getting double-digit assists and scoring. They're kind of a different team. Look, we talked about him and his evolution, if you will. When he came back from the injury after missing some time, he wasn't himself. And you could tell maybe it was him – 
kind of protecting himself or the team, or he just didn't seem right. Well, now we're in this stretch where they're starting to win games where he's a triple-double guy. If he's going to be a triple-double guy, night in, night out, even with or without Zion, they have an opportunity to make a run in the play-in tournament like they did last year. That's that's just the reality of the situation because when he's in his bag, as the kids like to say, I use that properly. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, good usage there. Oh, oh thank you, D'Lo. Then there's no reason why they can't win games because what happens when B.I. is in that zone, if you will, what happens is it helps everyone else. It clears up the space on the floor. Murphy gets clean looks at three-pointers. Valachunas even has some clean looks. So even without Zion, they have a legitimate, amazing chance to win a lot of games. Now, does beating a Denver Nuggets team who was without the two-time defending league MVP, is that a marquee victory for this team? Well, we could debate that, right? I think that would be fair. We could debate that, but they needed a win. It's desperate times. The season is coming to an end. You have like five games left, so you have to win whatever games you have on your schedule, period. And losing the way they did at Golden State to bounce back on the road in Denver, which is a notoriously tough place to play because of the altitude, and people can't make the adjustment by just flying in the day before, it's still a good thing. Now, that being said, what's your big takeaways on what happened to the Houston Astros yesterday? They had won 10 straight opening day games. I don't take a lot of stock in losing opening day games. I, I just don't. I don't think if you lose the first game that the rest of your season, which includes 161 other games, is done. I just don't. Um, but anything stand out to you about what happened to the Houston Astros yesterday in their season opener at home at Minute Maid Park against the Chicago White Sox? Yeah, not much. I mean, I, I thought it was like a traditional opening day game. Um, that's kind of where my take was. Uh, both pitchers looked in midseason form. And, you know, we talk sometimes the pitching's ahead of the hitting at this point in the season. Um, Dylan Cease, you know, I, I, I don't want to, again, it's one game, so I'm not going to reconstruct the way I think about anything. But I am thinking a little bit differently about the White Sox if Dylan Cease looks like that all year. And I know he was so good last year. It was one of those things for me. I was thinking, let's see it again. You know, hitters get an off season to kind of look at what he did a year ago and what was, you know, I would say a breakout season. Um, not to say he didn't have decent years before that, but he was dominant. And I think that was more about him than the Astros lineup. Um, now, without Altuve and Brantley, we do have to temper expectations offensively for the first couple of months here. But I think they're going to score runs with the guys they have in that lineup. Um, I think plain and simple, Dylan Cease was just dominant last night. And, you know, look, the other thing that I took away, I saw some really competitive gritty at-bats late in the game. Jordan hits the solo homer to get him back in it. And they fought some – and look, guy was throwing 101 miles an hour with nice break as well. And they still were in every single at-bat. And so they didn't win that game last night. But that's, that shows me, too, that was a team that was focused and ready to play. Um, but it's baseball. Sometimes you lose baseball games. Right. It's a long season, right? Now, things that did stand out to me yesterday, you know, 
my Braves, huh, their ace or one of their two aces, has to leave the game early because of a hamstring issue, which not is ideal. never – no, not ideal. That is not optimal. But they still end up winning their opener against the Nationals. And, you know, the other thing is that the Mets were stable to win, but Verlander having the issue with the shoulder, that's another possible injury. Now, I don't think it's going to be long-term for the Metropolitans, but that's interesting. You know, it, it was – look, it was opening day. It's still early, but still plenty of time, especially if you're an Astros fan. Look, we, we – this is what they do, though. Right. If you're talking about Houston, they always start off the season slow. Always. They always come out a little sluggish. It always takes them a little while. And they're doing this without the heartbeat of their team, Jose Altuve. They're doing this without Michael Brantley being able to go out there. They're doing this without one of their starting pitchers, Lance McCullers, to be able to go out there. So for Astro fan that may be upset, and I know there's some out there, that they lost their opener to the Chicago White Sox, you got to pump the brakes. If they're still losing games to the Chicago White Sox in, you know, June, <laughs> then there may be an issue, right? If if they're still having uh, problems and they're around 500 ball club in June, then then there can be issues uh, for you to be concerned about, to be alarmed about. Yeah, yeah. It, this is way too early. This is way too early. So, Pels. Astros. Let's talk about the reason why I'm here in Dallas. And once again, this road trip to Dallas to Big D, of course, is brought to you by Bailey's Cigar Room. They're the sponsor of this live broadcast from Dallas, Texas, home of this year's Women's Final Four. Of course, LSU will be taking on Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's got some players, and they got one in particular who recorded her 56 double-double, her career double-double, in the win over Ohio State. And that's Whitley, the big girl down low. But they don't have a whole lot after that, in my opinion, Dawson. Now, they have some good guard play. So there's some good matchups here, and the line in Vegas is simply two. Two, two and a half in favor of Kim Mulkey's team. I think this is a coin flip game. I think this is going to be more in line of what we saw in the Sweet 16 when LSU had to take on Utah. I think it's going to be that type of game. I think it's going to be a tight game. I think it's going to be a physical game. But I do like LSU in this game. And here's why for me, Dawson. I like LSU in this game because, well, A, they have Angel Reese. <laughs> and I... I don't expect LSU or Angel to shoot as poorly as they did in my uh, against Miami in the Elite Eight game. I don't expect that. I think you're going to see a far better performance offensively for them. And But LSU has players like LaDasia Williams. They have other girls that can step up in a big way for this team. I think that matters. And even though Vatek... And LSU, these groups of athletes, these groups of young women, are both making their first appearance in the Final Four, and it's actually Vatek's first ever appearance in the Final Four. I still like LSU. And Kim Mulkey kind of, you know, downplays the importance of 
her coaching legacy, her coaching experience, winning multiple national championships, this is being her fifth Final Four in her career as a head coach. I don't downplay that. She does. I'm not going to. I think that matters. I think it matters in the preparation of getting the girls ready. I think it matters when you have to go play in a huge arena like they're going to be doing later today. I think all of that matters. And I think Kim is going to know exactly what to do to get her team to be mentally prepared to deal with the nerves of being in the Final Four. And I think that's going to be a difference maker, that and the play of someone like Ladeja Williams and one of those other players that's not named Angel Reese and Alexis Morris that's going to help the Tigers pull out the win. That's what I think is going to happen later today, 6 o'clock tip down the road at the American Airlines Arena. And, of course, you can listen to it on the game. But um, That's you know, correct. <laughs> Five, pre-game begins at 5.30. I think, it's, I think it is one of the better matchups they could have had in this, in this round, especially when you get to this point, you're expecting to see one of the best teams in the country, and you are. Um, but I honestly think they probably prefer this matchup to Indiana, who they avoided thanks to Miami's upset. Um, I certainly, I know they prefer this matchup to South Carolina, although they'd like their chance at the Gamecocks again, but they'd probably prefer that to be in the championship game the way it would be. And I think they might even, I, I would honestly think they'd prefer this over playing UConn. Like, I think there's a couple of things, and Virginia Tech being in the ACC, um, which was pretty good this year, but not one of its dominant seasons in women's basketball. Not what um, it's been, correct. And... I think you have a chance here. Now, it's interesting. Virginia Tech and LSU kind of match up pretty well. They both have a pretty good player inside. Um, I think LSU's player happens to be better inside. And they both have some pretty good guards that try to kind of, you know, counter that and, and, and help with the outside shooting and things like that. So I think the big key, and, and you brought this up last week, it was your key this week. My key is Alexis Morris. Like, is she going to make enough shots? And if she doesn't, can someone else step up and make enough shots? Um, because I think Angel gives you a little bit of an advantage inside, and she's going to get hers, we know that. But we also know Virginia Tech's going to be focused on doing everything they can to the defender, and they might be one of the few teams that does have a chance, just based on matchups, they have a chance to defend her better than most. So who can be the difference maker? And I think it has to be either Alexis Morris or one of these other guards. They have to make, you know, you don't have to make a ton of threes, but you got to make a couple. You don't have to make a ton of mid-range shots, but you got to make some. And so I think that's the key is is who which team if they both get theirs on the inside, which team's able to do something on the outside. I think that becomes the key in this game and I do I do like LSU's chances to to be the team that does that. And I don't think you can downplay Kim Mulkey's impact on this game. A coach that's been there before, um, you know, more so than anyone left in this tournament. You know, even more so, you know, than Don Staley at South Carolina. There, there's no Geno who'd maybe been the guy I would have said, okay, well, you have Geno in there. Like Kim Mulkey's the most experienced, most accomplished, best coach left in this tournament, in my opinion. Um, so I think that can make a difference. I think you make a huge difference. And I think it will make a huge difference, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that's going to be the X factor in this game. Now, when we get to a title game, that's a totally different thing, right? That that's that's going to be something that's going to be 
that's maybe not going to be as matter as much because we anticipate South Carolina and Dawn Staley being there. They're the defending national champs. They're undefeated, right? They're, they're, they are the, 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 you know, gold ring, if you will, in women's college basketball right now, even more so than UConn. So I think it's going to matter. We'll dive deeper into this later on on today's show when Scott Rabelais from The Advocate will be joining us to help us preview the women's Final Four and to talk about Kim Mulkey and the job that she's been able to do here in year two. Once again, I'll say it again, Dawson. I know we're up against a timeout, but i got to say it again. This is year number two. This is year number two of her rebuild. She took over a team that was awful, that was terrible. They were one of the worst in not only the SEC, but one of the worst in the country. And she has them in the final four. Just wrap your brain around that if you can. Certainly playing I know it's with difficult. house money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that kind of makes them dangerous for the other teams here. we got to take a timeout. When we come back here on this special edition of RP3 and Company, presented by Bailey's Cigar Room, as we broadcast live from Dallas, we'll look at the poll question of the day, get to those comments, and get to those results. As That's how we're going to close out our number one as we broadcast here from Big D. You're listening to the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. All right, welcome back to this special edition of RP3 and Company presented by Bailey Cigar Room as we're broadcasting from downtown Dallas home. Of the women's final four, LSU will take on Vitek later tonight. And, of course, we'll have that game for you right here on the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Poll question of the day, though, is how far will the LSU women go in the final four? Will they win just tonight? Will they go to Sunday and pull off the upset? They're trying to be the lowest seed, by the way, to win a national title. Since 1997, I do believe. It's only happened twice in the women's game. Far less parity on the women's side of things when it comes to the NCAA tournament in the Final Four. How far will the LSU women go in the Final Four? And right now, 50% say they're going to lose in the title game. 32% of you say lose in the semis. 18% say going to win the national championship. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll make sure to share them throughout today's show. Our number one, we survived. It's in the books. Hour number two, it's going to be even better. Yours truly and D-Lo coming up right here on the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything going to be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Good morning. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. We had a, what we'll call in, interesting hour number one. I'm here in Dallas for the women's Final Four. LSU 
trying to advance to the national championship for the first time in the NCAA era. They did it once before back in the 70s before the NCAA recognized women's athletics. Big deal. Year number two of Kim Mulkey. We're here broadcasting live from downtown Dallas, courtesy of our sponsor for this road trip, Bailey Cigar Room. Dawson, a.k.a. D'Lo, is back in the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette, holding it down. Had a bit of a snafu to start the day. Had a piece of equipment. Want to fight back on your boy, RP3, which caused a domino effect, a chain reaction, if you will, of technical difficulties. Thankfully, <laughs> we have everything up and running now. And thankfully, I got Dawson Iselow back in the studios holding it down. Thanks again for that, brother. No worries. Took care of things. You made sure while I was um, dealing with a piece of equipment that uh, literally hit me. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get into that <laughs> later on. I, 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 had, I had a worry about it, and uh, yeah, nothing like uh, when something uh, attacks you. But we're here broadcasting live, having a great time. Once again, we'll be carrying the women's Final Four game between LSU and Virginia Tech. That will be later today. Tip is scheduled for 6 o'clock. It's the first of the two games here in Big D. And hour number one, we talked about the Pels getting a hard-fought win, a good win on the road against the Denver Nuggets. We also touched on the Houston Astros dropping their season opener for the first time in more than a decade against the Chicago White Sox. To talk more about the Strohs and just opening day in general is our good friend from the Lima Time Time podcast. Oh, he's also a contributor for the Houston Chronicle. Oh, he used to work for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Our good buddy James Yasko joins us now. James, good morning to you, brother. How are you? Hey, I'm fine. Baseball's back, kind of. I'm ready for the Astros to actually start playing. Yes, baseball is back. So I know, look, it's game number one. Opening day was yesterday. Just give me your thoughts on what you saw across baseball yesterday. Um, you know, baseball's dealing with some injury issues. We saw former Astro Justin Verlander. He's now been scratched for him his Saturday start because there's some type of issue, you know, with his shoulder. We saw the Braves lose their opening day starter during the game to a hammy issue. So uh, injuries were plentiful um, in spring training in the World Baseball Classic, and then on opening day of baseball. That's just baseball, but. What you make? Uh, what do you make of some big key stars having these injuries through spring training, World Baseball Classic, and now the opening day of the season? I, th- I think that that's pretty normal. I mean, it's nothing. It's not like there's this. It, it's not like it was in in 2020 uh, when Rob Manfred basically was like, "No, we're going to start after you know canceling spring training because of COVID, and then giving everyone like a 15 minute heads up that that opening day you know was was starting." So, and then you you saw that's when Verlander needed Tommy John. Uh, a whole bunch of people got hurt just in the quick ramp up. So it's not. It's, I don't think it's anything like that. Um, but you know, no. I mean, the overall mood is like, thank God baseball's back. Like we're we're going. Like these games, these games count. It's back up and going. And you're right. Injuries are always going to be part of it. Uh, before we dive into the Astros. Dawson and I, yesterday, James, we gave kind of our predictions, which is always fun to do because it's always going to be wrong, especially when it comes to baseball. But we went through and and predicted our teams for each division, the the three wild card spots, who's going to win each league, and then the World Series. 
in the American League, I think it's pretty much chalk in, in, in a lot of ways for the division. I think the Yankees hold off the Blue Jays. Uh, Dawson and I both like the Twins to win the AL Central. And then, of course, we both have the Astros winning the West. But I do have Blue Jays, Mariners, and I picked the Texas Rangers. He picked the Anaheim, Los Angeles, Credit Union County Angels, the fighting MVPs, to get that third wild card spot. So we both think that the West may be the best division in Major League Baseball, at least in the American League this year. What do you think of that? You know, we did a, on on the latest Lima Time Time. We did we did a very the, the exact same exercise, uh, and I, I agree one hundred percent with you. I think I think the Rangers have done enough to be to to make it into the into the wild card. Um, but but yeah, there's not, and I think we saw this a little bit last year. There's not that many teams that are in a position to. Uh, to, to challenge for a title. So I, I think, you know, you've got six pretty good teams in each league and they're going to be the ones that they're going to be the ones that end up making it. So I, I think there's a, there are more teams that are in various phases of rebuilding that you're not, I don't think you're going to have this, you know, you're not going to have 10 teams fighting for, for the last two wildcard spots. I think they're going to separate themselves, uh, you know, pretty, pretty early on in the season. We know the Mariners are going to be a challenge. I think the Rangers are going to be a, a challenge as well. For the Astros, they're always slow starters, right? This is typically what they do. They're a little sluggish coming out the gate in this year. No Brantley to start the season. No Lance McCullers Jr. to start the season. And no Jose Altuve to start the season. But we know this team can turn it on. And we know that Alex Bregman can step up. We know that Alvarez, Tucker, I mean, the lineup is filthy. And they still have filthy pitching as well. But what do you what do you anticipate this team looking like the first month to two months without Altuve, without Brantley, and without McCullers? So I think Brantley, from what I understand, Brantley is going to be back here in in a few weeks. Like it's not a it's not a two month scenario uh, for like it is for for Altuve. Uh, McCullers, I have no idea. So I mean, if, if you, I know that that the, every Astros fan is spoiled from from this little six-year stretch that, that the Astros have gone on, that, that if a team is within 10 games, we, we, everyone kind of looks around and is like, what the, what the heck is happening? Like, what's going on? So if the, if the division is, is more narrow, uh, you know, toward getting towards Memorial Day, then, I, you know, that's to be expected. Uh, I did not care for watching Mauricio Dubon try to hit last night. That was, that, I, didn't, I did not care for that. Um, and, you know, Chaz McCormick is going to get the majority of starts in center field. So uh, last night's not indicative of, of how this season is, is probably going to go, I don't think. Um, but, yeah, if it, ta- if it takes a little while to create that, the separation that Astros fans are used to, let's, let's, not, let's not panic. No, and look, it's game one. It's not as if the Astros are going to go 1-161 one now, right? So, so right. I, think, I think we can, you know, Calm down with uh, with with all of that. Six six tenths of a percent of a, of the season was played last night, so let's <laughs> let's slow down. Six tenths, six tenths of the season. I like that. With the guys that are going to be out, in particular out too, because you mentioned Brantley, it does look like Brantley's going to be returning in a few weeks. So maybe the max is going to be he's going to be out for you know maybe the first uh, two three weeks of the season, right? You're going to get McCullers back around what? Around that same time? Isn't that what we're kind of anticipating for the Astros to add him to the rotation? 
I have no, absolutely no idea. Like, there's, there's nothing. No, no word. Like, it's, it's a state secret. Uh, anyone who does know uh, knows that they will be killed if they talk about Lance McCullers. <laughs> We're talking with James Yasko of the Lima Time Tom podcast. He's also a contributor covering the Houston Astros for the Houston Chronicle. He joins us here on RP3 and Company with. Altuve out, who on the team do you think needs to step up? And and I've had this conversation, James, with a few people, and, I'm, and that's why I bring it up is, you know, everyone just goes to Alex Bregman, right, or Alvarez or Tucker or somebody like that picking up the slack. But I'm, I'm going to throw two names out there to you that I think may fill that void better than most. Abreu is new to the team, and it, no better way than to step up and kind of provide some leadership and provide some pop with your bat and prove that you belong here than to do this while Jose Altuve is out. But I'm going to give you someone else that I feel is really the guy that's going to step up. How about the future leader of this team? How about the future face of this team? And I'm going to say Jeremy Pena. Yeah, no, it, it, would, be, it would be very nice to have him hit, hitting in the, in the 280, 290 range and not the, the 230, 240 range. Um, but yeah, no, that's, I mean, you can't, Jose Altuve is one guy. Um, and so, you know, one ninth of the lineup, but, but he's also, you know, he, he, he gets, he, he gets hits, he gets on base. Um, so everyone in that, in that infield needs to pick it up a little bit. I don't think Maldonado's a one ninety hitter. I I think we're going to see a better offensive season from, uh, from him, but yeah, no, if, if Mauricio Dubon, I, I, part of me thinks if Mauricio Dubon is the answer, then you are asking 100% the wrong question. Uh, but everyone's going to have to kind of pick it up a little bit just to sort of hold it down until, until Altuve's back, until Brantley's back. When I look at this rotation, it's still really, really good. And we had discussions last year about Framer Valdez stepping up and actually being the team's ace or kind of taking in that role even though Verlander won the Cy Young, right, coming off of Tommy John. It's a weird thing to say, hey, you lost a Cy Young Award winner and you still have another guy who could possibly win the AL Cy Young Award this year. That's how great the depth is and that's how great Framer has been and what he's developed into. When you look at the rest of the rotation, don't count McCullers because you're not for sure when you're going to get him back. He's just going to be Lanyap whenever he does return. What do you make of this rotation? What, That's great. What 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 is this rotation's biggest strengths, and what it stands right now? What's its biggest weakness? Uh, so, I mean, you've you've lost you've lost Ver like you you lost Verlander. McCullers is going to be a question mark. That's that's forty percent of one of the best rotations in baseball. Uh, yes, they have some guys that that have proven that they're that they're durable, uh, that they are quality. <coughs> excuse me, they're quality starters. Um, but I mean, you know this. You, you're gonna you're gonna have to rely on on anywhere between ten and fifteen starting pitchers over the course of an entire season. Uh, and with Verlander, you know he made he made his usual thirty starts. Uh, McCullers made his usual ten. You know that's that's forty that's forty starts that that has to come from somewhere, uh, and they need to be high level starts as well. So yes, you can look at at Framber and Javier and Urquidy and Garcia. Um, and and uh, there's someone I'm missing. I can't think of I can't think of who it is off the top of my head right now. Um, 
but but what do you have beyond that? Like because you can't you you can't just expect them to make thirty two starts every year. There and there be no hiccups or or you know some little injury that that you need to miss a start. Uh, what's what's it look like once you get beyond the the front five? That's 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 the biggest weakness I think. The strength is that you can rely on those five, um, and so it's a, it's a little bit of a part and parcel situation there. Obviously, you know what you're going to get, and some other guys are going to have to step up, right? You're going to need more consistency from Christian Javier during the regular season. You'd like to see Hunter Brown be able to develop into what we think he can be. The bullpen is going to be legit. They bring back everyone from the World Series. Uh, let me ask you this. Even with the injuries, they're still the favorite to win the West. They're still the favorite to win the American League. How much does having Dusty Baker back as the skipper going to matter for this team, especially as they deal with the losses in free agency and the losses to injury in this lineup? Well, you need someone to keep the boat steady. Uh, and so and so bringing back everyone that was a part of of last year's World Series run, you know, there, there's, there's nothing, there's not a new managing style, there's not a new personality to have to get used to. Um, I would imagine that if, if, if Dusty Baker is pissed off at you, then you probably know. So there's, there's not any kind of different philosophical uh, approach to, to the clubhouse. Now, the front office is, a, is, is, is a, different, a different story. But if you're on the roster, you know, you know what you're getting when you come to the ballpark every day. You know what's expected of you. Uh, and so, you know, as, and, and baseball is all about rhythm and feel and familiarity and routine. All of that's going to stay intact. So I, I think that, that it's, a, it's a good thing uh, for the Astros' repeat hope to have, to have Dusty Baker back. James, appreciate your time. As always, enjoy opening weekend, brother. We'll talk to you next Friday morning, bud. You drop lanyap in, in, in everyday conversation. That is, that is outstanding lafayetting that you just did. <laughs> this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Here on RP3 and Company, we talk about the sports you know and love. Baseball, football, basketball, and soccer. Isn't this great, man? I love soccer. Here we go, Galaxy. Here we go. Okay, maybe not soccer, but we'll try to do our best. Back to more knowledgeable sports talk with RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company as we broadcast live from downtown Dallas, home of the NCAA Women's Final Four. Of course, this road trip is presented by Bailey's Cigar Room. I'm here, which means the producer extraordinaire, a.k.a. D-Lo, a.k.a. Two Degrees, a.k.a. the producer extraordinaire, is back in the Evco Development Studios. Brother, how are you? Good. Good. It's been a smooth morning. It hasn't had anything <laughs> unexpected at all. In in four years of doing this, I'll be approaching my fourth year here at the station hosting this morning show, and I've hosted shows everywhere. I'm talking in grocery stores. I'm talking sports bars. 
Uh, I'm talking hotel rooms. I'm talking hotel rooms where Kevin Foote has alarmed the uh, cleaning staff. Okay, I've been everywhere, multiple states. I've never, never had what happened this morning happen. <laughs> it had a domino effect. Thankfully, you were calm, cool, and collected, and we were able to man the ship while I finally got up and running here. But we are hitting the ground running, and we do have a poll question of the day to talk about. And that's about those LSU Tigers, Kim Mulkey's team. Once again, they're here. They'll be taking on Virginia Tech. You can listen to that game live right here on the game. Pre-game begins at 5.30, tip right at 6 o'clock. It's the first of the two games here today for the Final Four. If LSU advances, they will advance on to the championship game on Sunday, and we'll have that for you as well. And, and the interesting thing is that no men's team and no women's team in LSU history has ever made it to, has ever made it to an NCAA national championship game in basketball. Think about that for a second. It's never happened. They, ha they have a bunch of Final Fours. They've been to numerous Final Fours. Both programs have. But they've never played for a national championship. Now, the women did play for a national championship. That was back in 1977. But that was prior to the NCAA actually recognizing women's sports. That's pre-Title IX. So, even if they win, to, even if they lose, let's say they win today and they lose in the championship game, Dawson, this is going to be a monumental day for the LSU women's basketball program and the LSU basketball programs if they can actually get a win at the Final Four. You're telling me Ben Simmons never made it to the championship game at LSU? Oh, Benjamin. Oh, that's a guy that was committed. Let me tell you, he was committed to winning and helping his teammates. And that's carried over into the NBA. Whew, man, that, no, that guy's known as a great leader, great player. Poll question of the day is we asked you, how far will this LSU women's team go in the Final Four? 59% of you believe that they will win today, but they're going to lose in the title game. 21% of you say they're going to lose in the semifinals. That'll be today against Virginia Tech. 20% of you say they're going to go all the way. They're going to win the whole thing, going to tear down, not tear down, you'd cut down, but maybe you want to be more aggressive, tear down the Nets and win the national title. Let's get to some comments here on the poll question of the day. Martin says, loses in title game, but it won't be to South Carolina, but to Iowa. That's right, I'm picking Iowa to upset South Carolina in the Battle of the Birds. What do you make of that comment? What do you make of that comment by Martin? He's picking Iowa, Caitlin Clark, she is absolutely phenomenal to take down the defending national champs and the undefeated defending national champs. She's great, but she can't do it all. Um, you, um, South Carolina's just—they're just too good overall. So I, I, I don't think it happens. But I hope Caitlin Clark's able to put on a show enough. It's been a great mm. kind of um, display for women, women's basketball, and they've gotten you know kind of some due recognition. And I think Caitlin Clark is a big reason for that. So I hope she's able to play well. and Because you're going to have a lot of people tuning in to watch this game that don't necessarily watch women's college basketball usually, maybe not even usually watch the women's Final Four. They'll be tuned in because they hear the hype about South Carolina and Caitlin Clark. So I hope she's able to put on a show and at least keep this game competitive. She is a difference maker, but she's going to have to play a legendary game, right? She's going to have to put on one of those Final Four appearances that is going to go down in lore. 
Can she do that against South Carolina? And South Carolina, once again, they have players coming off the bench that can get them double-doubles. That, like, that's their depth. That's where they're at right now. Let's get to some other further comments. JPK, the OD, says, My heart says Natty all the way, but my brain says they lose to the, that South Carolina buzzsaw. Ralph on Twitter says, Regardless of what happens, great to see the turnaround that Coach Mulkey has achieved after the men's season. Thank God for the LSU women. But that baseball team is straight fire. We haven't even had a chance to go into that. They started off the Tennessee series, by the way, with a win. We'll get to that later on on today's show, not to worry. B-Rad says, LSU women's basketball in the Final Four. LSU baseball versus Agent Orange already up 1-0. What a Friday night. Go Tigers. Ton says, I want them to win a natty, but I think they fall just short against South Carolina in the Final 56-55. Not only is Ton saying they're going to win tonight, D'Lo, Ton says they're going on to the national title game, and he's giving us a score prediction in Sunday's Natty. That's deep there. Skip the skip the semi-scores, just given the title <laughs> game score. Um, uh, if LSU's defense holds South Carolina to 56 points, you, you've got to feel pretty good about their at least chances. So that would be that would be newsworthy. Uh, South Carolina, 11.5-point favorites against Iowa, so that kind of gives you an idea – it feels like it's like you mentioned. It's got to be something special from Caitlin Clark, and I think also yes. not only with her scoring, but she's going to have to set up her teammates because you know they're going to double and maybe triple her if they have to. They are not going to let her beat them. So um, she's got to use, and she's a great passer. We've seen that. So she's got to use those abilities um, and do more than just score. I think. I agree. She's going to have to have one of those legendary performances. She just can't be points. She's going to have to get all of her teammates involved, help get them some open looks if they're going to take down South Carolina. And one final comment before we hit the timeout. John Paul Cajun Daddy says, I'm going to need to agree with JPK, the OD. I'm confident they will beat Virginia Tech, which once again would be the first win in a Final Four for either the men or the women ever. That means another meeting with South Carolina. Also, I will no longer call... Dyson, Dawson Iserlo, the new guy, great job on the drive this morning. Would be great to see RP3 Sports uh, get hit in the head. No, no one wants to see me get hit in the head. And getting hit in the head this morning was not <laughs> – it, it, it had a chain reaction of not greatness. So, but yes, shout out to D'Lo. People are loving you, bud. Appreciate that. I told that. you. I told you. You're, I'm getting Wally pipped here. I'm getting Wally pipped. The The – one, one one bad mistake, they get you just just by yourself for half an hour, and all of a sudden people are like, Phew, maybe we need to change the name of this show from RP3 and Company to D-Lo and Company. It's funny, like, I don't get to the studio with a ton of extra time every morning. Like, I kind of have enough time to do it. But today I got here early, just like, I don't even know why. And it kind of really worked out because then, like, we had to figure things out, and I had to kind of create a little couple of segments. But... I don't know. Sometimes things work out like that. I was here early, and I don't. I, I got here, and I was like, "Man, why am I here so early?" And then it all worked out. So, <laughs> yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Hey, we'll take your phone calls. Hotline is open. Just because I'm here in Dallas does not mean we don't want to hear from you. Give us a holler. Hotline's open. Three three seven seven zero six zero one one one. That's three three seven seven zero six zero one one one. More RP three and company. Coming up as we broadcast live from Dallas, presented by Bailey Cigar Room. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. 
Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, LSU, the women's basketball team is here in Dallas. This is why RP3 and Company is on the road here in downtown Dallas, brought to you, of course, by Bailey Cigar Room. But while the women are here looking to win LSU basketball's first ever Final Four, the baseball team was back at home yesterday opening up a series against Tennessee. Now, the Volunteers, they became, let's be honest, the villains of college baseball last year when they won the regular season title and then the conference tournament title for the SEC. And it wasn't because they won. It was because how they behaved, how their skipper behaved, how they carried themselves would be a nice way of saying it. It rubbed people the wrong way. It rubbed a lot of fan bases the wrong way. And Tennessee just kind of embraced it. They're like, whatever, we're big and bad and no one can beat us. Well, that was until they didn't make it to Omaha because they were upset. Once again, the kiss of death being the number one ranked team when the regionals begin and going on to the Supers. But this is still a very good Tennessee Tennessee team. You could argue they may have the best starting three pitchers of any team, not only in the SEC, but possibly in the country. They're ranked in the top ten, and they set off yesterday inside Alex Box Stadium. Third SEC series for LSU. The previous two, they won. They took two out of three on the road at A&M, and then they took two out of three last weekend during that weird schedule with the weather changing up the games, making them play a doubleheader. They took care of Arkansas. Well, another ranked opponent, another SEC series, and the Tigers, well, they start off in a big way. Get a 5-2 victory yesterday over Tennessee. Jordan Thompson... Got himself a bases-loaded double in the bottom of the eighth inning, which proved to be the difference in this ball game as they got a 5-2 win over Tennessee. 13,068 people were in attendance. That's the largest in Alex Box Stadium, Skip Burtman Field. I didn't think that was going to be the case, but more than 13,000 folks showed up for this top-10 battle in Alex Box Stadium, setting a new attendance record. That is absolutely ridiculous. Obviously, LSU got its runs late. The two runs there in the bottom of the fifth. That gave them a 2-1 lead. Tennessee comes back, ties the game in the top of the eighth. But then, of course, they get the double, the bases clearing double there in the bottom of the eighth. And the Tigers win. The Tigers win, and they find a way. And this is what makes them so dangerous, Dawson, is that it wasn't Dylan Cruz yesterday. It was Jordan Thompson. They have so many of these guys that even if Dylan Cruz doesn't have a dominant game where he goes five for five, they still find a way to win. It could be Cade Beloso. It could be Jordan Thompson. This lineup is so deep. They have so many guys that can rake that they can hurt you in so many different ways. It is ridiculous how good this lineup is. Yeah, these are the games that LSU fans need to see them win right now um, to feel good about this this situation. 
Um, they know they're going to outscore a lot of teams and win a lot of games. Um, and they know that Paul Skeens is going to be good on Friday nights. But when you get into a game where it gets to the bullpen and it's still in question the way this one was, and you're able to get some runs late and your bullpen holds up, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of where LSU, their questions have been. So to win one like this on a Friday night, that's important. And, yeah, you know, it, now you get two chances to win the series. I, I don't think any of these are givens against Tennessee's pitching staff. But – when you win one like that, you get the feeling in a three-game series, the LSU offense is going to have a huge game in one of the three. Yes. So now you have two chances to have that breakout game, and, and maybe you give up some runs, but maybe it doesn't matter. So that's that's an important one for them. Skeens was huh, – guy's been phenomenal. I'm, I'm surprised how well he's made the transition from pitching at Air Force to now pitching in the SEC. He hasn't missed a beat. He's actually better. It's crazy – how dominant he is. We talk about Dylan Cruz being possibly the number one overall pick in the amateur draft. I mean, you can make an argument it could be Paul Skeens, the way he's pitching, and you're going to have him going to be a guy that a lot of Major League Baseball teams are going to want. Double-digit strikeouts yet again, seven innings, five hits, one run, 12 Ks. He's not even the lead to the victory. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? He, this is how good this LSU is, uh, LSU team is when their starting pitcher, a guy that could be the number one overall pick in the draft, goes seven innings, five hits, one run, twelve strikeouts, and the that that's kind of buried in the story, Dawson. That this is where this team is. Yeah, and and I mean, I you talk about schemes. I haven't I haven't seen a guy like this in college baseball in a long time, and so I know like it's it's easy to start to get ahead of yourselves with some of the hyperbole mm-hmm. around Dylan Cruz being the best player in LSU history although I don't think it's all that stretched out um, and Paul Skeens yeah it's, it, it is surprising he was great at Air Force so like it's not to be you know misunderstood and that he wasn't like an average pitcher who's taken a leave he was great there but he's been elite and dominant here it's you know what I mean it's different um, the level of dominance he had even like I'm not even talking about because he's doing it against different competition. I'm saying he's actually more dominant against the SEC right now. And, and you know, the sample size against the SEC is a little smaller, so maybe we can slow it down on that. But he has been more dominant than he was at Air Force. And that is surprising. But I think it kind of speaks to some of this coaching staff that Jay Johnson has and some of their, uh, you know, the training staff and everything that, that that goes into playing at LSU baseball. You know, I mean, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say LSU baseball has a little bit more resources than Air Force does, and that, that probably helped Paul Skeens as he uh, prepared for the season. They'll get back in action tonight, game two of that series, and then they'll wrap it up the uh, rare Thursday, Friday, Saturday series. They have a couple of those this year, LSU does. So we'll see if they can go ahead and clinch the series win tonight. Once again, programming reminder we got LSU women's basketball right here on the game from the Final Four. 5.30 pregame. Tip will be at 6 o'clock. They're the first game of the two here in Dallas for the Final Four. And you can listen to it all right here on the game. Let's check in on the poll question of the day. Keep it with the LSU conversation here. Once again, we asked you, how far will the LSU women go in the Final Four, will they lose in the semis, the semifinals tonight against Virginia Tech? Will they lose in the title game? Or will they win the whole thing? Ooh, could they win? Man, can you imagine what that's going to be like if they do that? It's going to be absolutely phenomenal if they just simply win tonight 
and give the program its first win in the Final Four ever, uh, NCAA Final Four. How far will the LSU women go in the Final Four? 56% of you say lose in the title game, so you believe that they're going to win tonight. Move on to Sunday's title game where they'll more than likely face South Carolina, but it could be Iowa. We'll find out. 22% of you say lose in the semifinals. 22% of you say win the whole thing. Taking down the Nets, winning the national championship. Dawson, what says you? What says you? I think I think they beat Virginia Tech and lose to South Carolina. That's that's what I, I just I don't think it's overcomplicated too. I don't think there's like any crazy ways to think about it. Um, I think they're better than Virginia Tech, though. I will give you that stat that I've been teasing. Um, I'll give you that later on in, in the next hour. But um, I just don't think they have enough for South Carolina. Simple as that. South Carolina is the gold ring right now, right? Undefeated, defending national champs, and they already played LSU once and uh, got the better of them pretty handedly. So, But you never do know what happens in a one-game scenario, so keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Leave your thoughts, your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Just make sure you keep it clean for the kids. That way we can share them. Got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, we'll talk Raging Cajuns baseball. Big series for them. Conference series for them this weekend. We'll hear from Matt Deggs. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Major League Baseball is back. And it's time for a tradition like none other. Old school baseball guys arguing with the analytical crowd on why RBI should still be relevant. Show us that million dollar arm because I got a oh, I got a good idea about that five cent head of yours. No, but seriously, what the heck is war? Yeah. What? Who comes up with this stuff? You're killing me, Smalls. Now, back to more baseball talk here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Yeah, it stinks, but it's necessary probably right now. Uh not having a minor league, you know, organization or you know uh, structure to draw from, which you would probably need to in a couple of spots where we're at. Uh, we've got to get some guys feeling good and and right. Scary moment with Debo, but I think he's good. Uh, you know, and then just a few hitters with some nagging stuff. You got CJ with the back, which I thought he played great, uh, but he had been injected earlier in the week, and then he gets hit by a pitch, believe it or not, right in the injection spot. It was a breaking ball, but still, uh, Zambo's wrists are getting better. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully McGee, will see him throw at some point this week, and uh, one more week closer getting Toit back at some point. So we could have used Toit this weekend for sure. Uh, they're a little bit deficient against lefties, and, and uh, I think that's another reason you saw Toit have some of the success – or uh, Tate have some of the success that he had. Raging Cajun skipper Matt Deggs there talking to the media earlier this week. Dawson, they get the rare week off, essentially, after having to play five game weeks, back-to-back weeks – no midweek contest for the Raging Cajuns this week, and they get to gear up for a home series there 
at the Teague against App State. And look, if it was up to Matt Deggs, he would want his team to play every day, right, or every other day. So it kind of irritates him a little bit that his team wasn't able to go play a midweek game this week. But he kind of tells you right there that maybe they need a couple of days off to get guys a little bit healthier. Yeah, timing seems to be on their side with that one. So, you know, it's it's they haven't played a bad weekend yet. That's the interesting thing. Now, Correct. The, the Campbell series is a lost series, but that's a top 25 team. Um, kind of consensus around college baseball right now. So, you know, I think they haven't really played their best baseball yet, but they've done enough to win a lot of games that they could have lost. And so I think that's the important thing about it. And now you play an App State team that, isn't one of the traditional powers in the Sun Belt, but has had some good teams here and there and can really swing the bats. You know, we had Jay Walker on earlier in the week tell us about how good App State can swing it, and I think it's a good test for your pitching staff that continues to develop. Um, the Cajuns are going to score runs at the Teague, I think, especially at home. They feel good about that ballpark, and um, we know they can do different things. We're still, I'm hoping Max Marshak has a big weekend, maybe get his season jump started, but other than him, you're swinging the bat well. You're scoring some runs. Um, you're doing a lot of things well. As long as you continue to pitch and play good defense, which you have done, you're going to keep winning Sunbelt Series, and that's what you have to do. You just keep stacking Conference Series wins, and as long as you do that, you're going to end up where you want to be at the end of the season. And you mentioned Jay Walker talked about how App State can hit the ball, and Matt Deggs talked about that as well earlier this week, just how good – App State is at the plate and how many runs they can actually score up on you. Four runs, you know, we saw that a year ago. Uh, we got after them pretty good uh, in games one and two a year ago, and I thought they had a nice ball club. Uh, and then they, they turned the tide on us in game three, and so they showed some resiliency. And then if you look at their scores, they put up a bunch on Campbell, and uh, Georgia State is off to another fast start, and they went with them toe-to-toe -to -toe and I think won that series. Uh, yeah, they're scoring, and, and uh, they're offensive, and so it'll be a great series. I think it is going to be a, 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 a better series than people think, Dawson. I think it's going to be entertaining because App State can hit, but it's a great challenge for Matt Deggs' team. And, and look, once again, you want to win every game, and fans believe that their team should win every single game. That said, win two or three. That's, that's really what the weekend is for. These weekend conference series are all about. Yes, you'd love to get sweeps. That would be amazing. Don't get me wrong. But if you can go out there and beat a conference opponent and take two or three, that's the goal. That's always the goal, and I like the Cajuns' chances to do that this weekend at the Teague. Yeah, that is the goal. And, it, look, if you win enough series and you play well enough to win enough of them, you'll, you'll find a sweep or two in there at some point anyway. Um, and so I think that's got to be the focus. It is, you know, the RPI can play games with you. When you're mm -hmm. in the Sun, but the Sun Belt now is a top five RPI league in the in the country. I mean, ahead of you know, and I, I'll have to check to see if they're still ahead of the Big Ten, but they've been ahead of the Big Ten most of the season, and so you should you don't need to feel the pressure to dominate the conference the way you know maybe softballs felt that pressure in the past. That might change this year as well because softball, the conference strength is up as well. So you continue to win series, you stack those, and um, see where you end up. And it, it is important 
even though App State's a nice, young, dangerous team, you got to win the series at home um, because you have series against Coastal Carolina and Southern Miss and Texas State looming. So you got to win as many of these now um, so that if you do lose to some of the better teams in the conference, it doesn't uh, hurt you as much as if you lose a series like this and then lose one of those series or you know get swept or something right. like that, you put yourself in a hole. Good stuff there, Cajuns versus App State. We'll have a special edition of Crunch Time with Miguez and Mesh live from the Teague this afternoon, 4 to 5.30. You're excited about that as Matt will be live on location there inside Russo Park. So you got to make sure to tune into that later this afternoon. And we'll have coverage for the Cajuns series against App State at 1037thegame.com and 1041thegame.com. That's going to do it for hour number two. Hour number three coming up right here on the game. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. It's 8.03. Let's do some dancing on this Friday morning. We had a rough start of it today here on RP3 and Company, but smooth sailing now. Final hour has arrived. Of course, I'm in Big D, Dallas, Texas. Downtown Dallas, in fact. Just a stone's throw away from where the final four for the NCAA Women's Tournament will be taking place. And, of course, the LSU women. Kim Mulkey's team will be in the house. Their game number one, they'll be taking on Virginia Tech. The other final four, the other semifinal will be South Carolina. You're defending undefeated national champs, taking on Caitlin Clark in the Iowa Hawkeyes. Both should be really good games tonight. We'll have the LSU women's game, of course, right here on the game. Hey, not to worry. You can tune in and listen to it. Pre-game is going to begin at 5.30, tip set for 6 o'clock. So that's going to be coming up later on today. I'm here. Of course, I'm here because of the Final Four and because of our sponsor, Bailey Cigar Room, who's proudly sponsoring this road trip to Big D for RP3 and Company. That means the producer extraordinaire, Mr. D-Lo, Dawson Isolo, is back inside the Evco Development Studios, holding things down, proving that I'm not even needed anymore. He's just going to run the show. He's going to run the station. He's going to run the world. My man's taking over. Apparently, I'm in the process of being uh, Wally Pipped. Good morning, bud. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a stressful start to the day. By the uh, way, was... you know, I did want to give you an update. Um, oh. because we had the gift card fiasco and everything. We explained that situation yesterday. And we didn't give the name of the establishment, which I'm glad because I'm now going to say how poor the experience was. It was... Oh, no, dude. No, it was tough. And it, because the, 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 the item I ordered is like one of my favorite things to eat in a restaurant ever. And um, we won't be going back. So the good news is I won't have to travel <laughs> back to Baton Rouge or you know anywhere to go to this establishment again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> How was okay? So the establishment let you down. 
Yes. Right. Thankfully, you didn't have to pay for the meal because you had a gift card. Correct. So no money out of your back pocket. So all in all, not too bad. But how was the Top Golf experience? Because obviously, we're excited. We talked about it yesterday for your birthday that you're going to go to Top Golf, and we're getting one here in Lafayette, which is going to be really exciting. But how was the Top Golf? Yeah, no, that it was fun. That was cool, and um, we uh, we had it set up. And then we, 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 we went to the old course at St. Andrews, and we were playing virtually at St. Andrews. Oh, nice. Um, so that was cool. Now, you know, I don't know how fully accurate some of the readings are, and I still don't understand how they're <laughs> tracking which golf ball is leaving. But, I mean, for the most part, it seemed pretty legit. And um, I was playing well, too. I was, you know, making some pars and bogeys. Uh, they kind of set it. It's cool, though. You, you kind of you hit your tee shot, and it kind of tracks it on to, the, you know, the way simulators do. But then when you get inside of like 50 yards, you then aim at the yellow targets that are actually there physically at Top Golf. And if you make it in the hole, the small hole, it's like a one putt. And if you make it in the bigger hole, it's like a two putt. And if you're outside of it completely, it's like a three putt. So oh, that's wow. It tracks. So it's that, that, that part was cool. It was, it was fun. It was a good time. So it was a nice cap to what was a slow start to the evening. So slow start to the evening, but you got to go to Top Golf. You got to spend the day with your lady and. Even though the Astros lost, your Pelicans won. So, all in all, yeah. look, the dinner, not great. The Astros losing, not great. But you got to spend time with your lady. You got to go to Top Golf, And your Pels capped it off with a win last night at the Denver Nuggets. So, all in all, not a bad birthday for you, D'Lo. No, not bad at all. Not bad at all. Uh, happy to be here. And the Pels did get it done. Um, I can't tell you I stayed up for the fourth because I didn't. I was uh, – <laughs> but – I did have it on in the background, and I watched the first half completely, and I felt great about the first half, but I did figure this might go terribly wrong. I'm not going to – because then the problem is if I stay up and watch it and get upset, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have more trouble falling asleep. So everything worked out, and again, for some reason, I showed up super early, and we didn't have too, too many issues handling the first hour of the show with uh, some of the curveballs we were throwing. So that will be successful in my book. I'm going to take it as a win as well, brother. I'm going to take it as a win as well. So let's talk about the game today. We've talked about it throughout today's show. Kim Mulkey, year two, phenomenal, right? This is unprecedented, the type of turnaround she's been able to do because the LSU women's basketball program was a mess, a absolute mess. To even be at the Final Four is a win. We know that. But they have a chance to do something that no LSU men's team has ever done and no LSU women's team has ever done. And that's win a game at the Final Four. The only national semifinal win that has occurred for the LSU either men or women was back in 1977 when the women won in the old organization because for the longest time, the NCAA did not recognize women's athletics. That didn't happen until after Title IX. So they went to a national tournament and won their semifinal matchup back then, but then lost in the title game. So we're talking NCAA Final Fours. The women have never won an NCAA Final Four game. The men have never won an NCAA Final Four game. And they have a great opportunity later today, early this evening, to be able to do that. And you've been teasing this all week about this team about this matchup, about this Final Four, and now's your chance to shine, D'Lo. What do you make of this matchup between LSU and Virginia Tech, and what do you think is going to be the key tonight 
for Kim Mulkey's team to be able to punch their ticket to play in the national championship game on Sunday. Yeah, so I I, I, I did some digging here, and, and this was the one that caught me off guard the most. I don't know if it directly impacts the game in a huge way tonight, but Virginia Tech, there's there's so many things they do well, and when you're one seed and you're 31-4, and four, there are going to be. Yeah, they haven't lost a game, by the way, since January. Right. So, yeah. And so that's why I found this stat even that more surprising. LSU, when you talk about taking care of the basketball, is pretty good at it. They're under 14 turnovers a game. Um, they're within the top 100 or so teams in the country there. They're not, like, elite at protecting it, but they're pretty decent. They have had some struggles at times, though, and I think when they have struggled, a lot of times it's been because they've become too loose with the basketball. Virginia Tech does not take the basketball away very much. Now, they do force some turnovers, um, and some teams have some unforced errors against them. But when it comes to actually creating steals, Virginia Tech, out of 361 Division I women's basketball teams, they are 348th in the country in steals per game. They only steal the ball 5.2 times per game. So that just struck me. I don't know what the reason is. I can't tell you I've watched... Too, too many Virginia Tech women's basketball games this year. I saw them play a couple of times in the tournament. But for whatever reason, they're not great at creating steals. Now, they do force some turnovers for their opponent, but not as many as LSU does, and they're not great at taking it away in that regard. So I think that may be placed to the advantage of LSU, even if they make some mistakes here early on and they're maybe loose with the basketball. Virginia Tech isn't going to pressure you enough to create that many steals. So I think that lends its hand to LSU's half-court offense. Um, and the other stat I'll, go, I'll give you as a bonus here, um, the LSU women's team, when it comes to free-throw shooting, have attempted the third most free-throws out of 361 Division I women's basketball teams, and they made the fourth most. But they're only 229th in free-throw percentage. So... They don't make all of them, and we know Angel Reese has kind of been up and down at the line. That's been part of that. And she's Especially taking, during the tournament. Right, she's taken the majority of those. So while they are most likely going to get to the line, they're going to need to convert. I think that becomes a little bit of a factor as well. And then again, can you take advantage of the fact that for whatever reason, Virginia Tech, as good as they are defensively, they don't force a lot of steals. So those are my two things that I found interesting about the numbers that I will be paying attention to. Look, they both have post players that are can be dominant. Whitley for Vitek, she has 56 career double-doubles, so she can play, right? She's a really, really good player. And they have a good guard as well. But I think LSU's depth, Alexis Morris is going to have to play well if they're going to win tonight. And Ladeja Williams, I think, is going to have to step up and, and play well. But I like LSU's chances in this game. I, I just do. because. And here's the number one reason. Obviously, they have Angel. They have Alexis. The way they have played defense in this NCAA tournament. I don't know what happened after the Tennessee game when they lost at the SEC tournament, Dawson. But ever since then, they have been locked in, aggressive, and hyper-focused on defense. They shut down Hawaii's three-point shooting. Michigan was held to a season low for points in a quarter and a half. They shut them down. They Utah, who was averaging 83.5 points per game, shut them down to a, like a season low, took the Twins out against Miami. Every opponent, LSU's defense has been the difference. 
And if you're telling me that Virginia Tech doesn't force a lot of turnovers, doesn't get a lot of steals, and they're playing a team that is aggressive on the defensive end, I think the defense advantage goes to LSU, and I think the Tigers get the W tonight because of that, and they punch their ticket to the national title game. I would agree with that, and we'll get a little bit more perspective on that in about a half hour when we talk with Scott Rabelais. Scott Rabelais from The Advocate. He's in Dallas as well. So we'll do a little bit more of that coming up here on RP3 and Company as we are broadcasting once again live from downtown Dallas, courtesy of our friends over at Bailey Cigar Room. We're here for the women's final four. I'll be covering it tonight. The ELO is back in the EVCO Development Studios. we got to take a timeout. But when we return here, we're going to talk some more baseball, a great new book to let you know about. We're going to have the author, Dale Tafoya, is going to be joining us next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station, your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. You know the routine. Eat, drink, sleep, and sports all day every day you're listening to the game 1037 lafayette and 1041 lake charles southwest louisiana's sports station The Major League Baseball season, of course, is underway, but so is the minor league system. And you know your boy RP3 loves minor league baseball. A couple years ago, I did a cannonball run trip with some fellows of mine. We went over to Jackson, Mississippi to see the Mississippi Braves. Last summer, I was somehow able to convince my wife and child to squeeze in a minor league baseball game there in Nashville. I've even gone to the Pensacola Blue Wahoos and got a tour of their facility. I love minor league baseball. My favorite baseball movie, my favorite sports movie period is Bull Durham. To say the least, I love baseball and I love minor league baseball. And trust me when I say this, you're going to love the new book, One Season in Rocket City, How the 1985 Huntsville Stars Brought Minor League Baseball Fever to Alabama. Joining us here to talk about the book is the author himself, Dale Tafoya. Dale, good morning. How are you? Great, uh, Raymond. Thanks for having me on. What was unique about the Huntsville Stars and their story that hooked you and inspired you to sit down and write a book about their franchise and about that great season in 1985? I like uh, capturing baseball awakenings in cities. I like capturing how a, a sports franchise, even a minor league club, can fill a void in a city and can rejuvenate a city. And when I was writing my first book, Bass Brothers, back in the early 2000s, uh, I delved into the year Jose Canseco passed through Huntsville in 1985. That was the A's double-A affiliate at the time. And, of course, the Bass Brothers were Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. And after interviewing dozens of people there connected with that season there, uh, the late Don Mincher, he was the GM of the Stars, he, Mr. Baseball in Huntsville, a Huntsville legend, uh, Mark McCarter, a Huntsville writer there, and the late Bob Mays, who was the first beat writer for the Stars in 1985. Uh, what really jumped out, Raymond, was just the joy and electricity and breath of fresh air that this farm club brought to the community at that time. The city had a, a, a new star-studded minor league baseball team with a state-of-the-art sparkly new baseball stadium, Joe W. Davis Stadium, named after the mayor. Uh, fans poured into that stadium to watch the stars, and, and there was just a baseball awakening uh, that took place. There was just a, a special romance between that club and 
in the community. Uh, as Sandy Alderson, who wrote the forward in the book, as he says, that this team uh, was almost became almost mythical very early in that 1985 season. And the success uh, of the 1985 Stars, it was a product of the perfect timing for the city and the rise uh, of Oakland's top prospects. So, uh, as you said earlier, minor league baseball could be very exciting, and I was just very excited to capture the story uh, for the book. In the book, Dale, you document how this all came to be, right? The owner of the Nashville franchise, he got with another group. They decided to buy the AAA affiliate that was located in Evansville, Indiana, and they were going to relocate it to Nashville and make Nashville a AAA town. But he still had his AA franchise, and they looked to move it to Huntsville, but it almost didn't happen. Larry Schmidt, who was the owner of the Nashville Sound, and he was really backed by country music money, led uh, country music legend Conway Twitty was a part of the ownership group. So was, uh, so was Richard Sturman of the Oak Ridge Boys. Yeah, he, he, he bought that Evansville franchise with the idea of uh, elevating Nashville from AA to AAA, which, which he did. So he still had the shell of the AA franchise, and he, 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 need, he wanted to keep it, and that's kind of what put into motion how, uh, how the, the, that, that Nashville franchise, the AA, eventually uh, moved to, to, to Huntsville. And the big snag uh, was, Raymond, of course, was that the, 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 there was some drama because R- Schmidt insisted on selling beer in the new stadium that Huntsville was building and, and, and financing. And the city's conservative city council immediate, immediately shot down, th- down that idea. You have to remember, Huntsville was in the thick of the Bible Belt. Beer sales was one of the hardest things to get approved in that area back then. Uh, for example, back then, if you wanted to purchase a bottle of wine in a store, the cashier took you in a curtained private back room and discreetly put the bottle in a bag. And you had to keep the wine bag inside the store the whole time. So there was just a lot of conservative churches in the Huntsville area that opposed alcohol. But, but Smitto insisted on beer sales in the new stadium in Huntsville, or he wouldn't deliver that franchise to Huntsville. The consensus among minor league owners was that a minor league team could not survive without earning revenue from, from, from beer sales. But they finally reached a compromise uh, in last-minute dramatic fashion, thanks to Mayor, Mayor Joe Davis, and a designated special section for non-drinkers was established in the new stadium. And that essentially opened the door for the AA franchise to come to Huntsville beginning in 1985. And, uh, it, it, and that's Joe Davis wanted Valley to bring that pro baseball club there to, to unite the community. He, he loved baseball. And they finally got the, the, the stadium approved, the stadium approved and the stars there uh, on August 23rd, 1984. Why did the ownership group believe that Huntsville, Alabama was going to be a good fit, a great place to have a minor league baseball franchise? Well, I think, I think uh, it, it started with, with the leadership, uh, Mayor, Mayor Joe Davis. He, he, he wanted a, a baseball, he was a baseball fan. He wanted a club to unite the city. Uh, but there still was a lot of uncertainty. Huntsville was, was, was a, a city recognized for, for space travel, even though Larry Schmidt, he was in talks without, about bringing a single-A club uh, with Huntsville officials as early as 1982. But that never happened because when you're financing a new stadium, that's always a financial commitment. So they finally agreed uh, in uh, late 1984 
And th- there was some uncertainty. That's why some of the city council members, uh, they initially shot down the idea, especially because of, of the beer sales. So there was uh, a risk. But here again, leadership, Larry Schmidt and Joe Davis saw that vision of what baseball can become in Huntsville, Alabama. Even though they hadn't had a, a franchise in 55 years, they took the chance. And the first year was just a, a, a tremendous success. The Stars won the 1985 Southern League Championship with a whole bunch of uh, hot prospects. And it was just a, a, as I mentioned, a baseball awakening, a revival. I mean, these, the city just embraced these minor leaguers. Uh, these minor leaguers, they owned the city. They, they were, I, 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 and I mentioned this, they were the Beatles of Huntsville, these players, because uh, this, 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 the Huntsville residents just, just embraced the players. And, again, a minor league team, any sports franchise, can, can just feel, feel a void in the community, and that's what these stars did uh, in 1985 for them. We're talking with author Dale Tafoya. His new one is One Season in Rocket City, how the 1985 Huntsville Stars brought minor league baseball fever to Alabama. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. Dale, you know, you mentioned in the book that the players felt like they were actually kind of playing in the show. They called it the minor league show anytime they were there in Huntsville, not only the home team, but opposition as well. What made Huntsville so special for minor league baseball in that 1985 season? Raymond, you have just this new state-of-the-art stadium, Joe uh, W. Davis Stadium. It, it, it opened on April 19, 1985. Uh, it was state-of-the-art, the best, the top uh, minor league stadium in, in all of minor league baseball. Um, it was There was a freshness. Also, the, the op- opening night uh, on April 19th, uh, they drew a, a, a crammed house of 10, over 10,000 fans that opening night. And the the, the 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 club was just stacked with prospects. You had Jose Canseco, Stan Javier, uh, Charlie O'Brien, Terry Steinbach, uh, Rob Nelson, um, Luis Polonia, as, as I mentioned, Ray Thoma. You, you had a, just a, a whole a whole bunch of prospects that were winning. Uh, you had a starting staff of Tim Belcher, uh, baseball's top amateur pitcher at the time, Eric Plunk, Gray Cattaray, Joe Law. The late Daryl Ackerfeld. So the, the, this team dominated early. I think that they started. They had a record of, of fourteen and five to open the season. They were mauling opponents. So it, it, that team really raised the bar for other other uh, other teams in the Southern League, and they were just dominant. And other opponents uh, recognized that and knew that. Here's this new star-studded uh, team of of Oakland's rising prospects who they got through the draft in the early 90s. And this team is the, the reward of Oakland's hard work in, in bolstering their farm system. And it all comes together in Huntsville, Alabama in 1985. And uh, other teams, as you mentioned, they were just pumped to pass through Huntsville. Uh, and it, it was dubbed the show. It became the hottest ticket in minor league baseball and was that way for a few years. Obviously, the talent played a huge role. You mentioned the stars like Steinbach and and Canseco and other guys that would go to be the foundation pieces for that great run by the Oakland Athletics when they went to three straight World Series and winning one World Series title in a three-year stretch. But how improbable is it to have a new franchise win a league championship in its very first year? imagine that, that that being very common uh it, as i mentioned it, it just all came together 
And at the time, Raymond, Huntsville desperately needed an outlet to bring the community together because it was recognized and celebrated as a space town after, of course, Werner von Braun arrived and designed the Saturn V rocket that shot man to the moon during the space race with the Soviet Union. Before that, it it was a cotton and cattle town. Uh, Huntsville had also become a a high-tech mecca and a lot of sophisticated, uh, educated scientists and engineers settled there. But it was just, it, it was just a, uh, there was a void there for entertainment. They had the Redstone Arsenal. They had a nice downtown area with some, some small civic centers. But the city lacked a major attraction to bring the community together. It, it needed summer entertainment and after-school after activities for youth. And as one Huntsville resident told me, it needed a venue for the community to explode in. So this was just a, 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 it just came at the perfect time, timing for the city and the rise of Oakland's prospects and the whole community just embraced it. So I think, I think this revival in Huntsville in 1985 was just all about the perfect timing. What's one thing that you didn't know when you took on this project that you surprised you while writing it? I think it's the, uh, the politics of, 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 of minor league baseball. Um, the intense pressure these minor leaguers feel uh, while playing in these challenging conditions of the Southern League, especially in the double-A classification, Raymond. Uh, the double-A classification can make or break a prospect. Double-A humble is the most talented, and there are kind of limited roster spots on the double-A team. It was all, Double-A is always filled with the top prospects of every organization, and it's more sophisticated than, than single-A. And most players uh, in double-A, they're kind of on an upward trajectory, so that, that level filters talent for the organization. So as Walt Jockety told me that if, if a player did well in double-A, they could probably play in, in the major leagues. And, and not, all, not all of the minor leaguers are considered prospects. You have roster fillers, and, and you have those things in the play. And even Huntsville... They, the, the fans there, they had a hard time adjusting to the politics of minor league baseball. For, for example, uh, a fan favorite there, as you're going to read in the book, Rocky Coyle. He was uh, demoted in May to, to Madison, and he was such a fan's favorite that, that the fans didn't want him to go. They filled a petition out uh, for him to stay, but uh, he still was demoted. Jose Canseco was just a legend there. He, just, he put up just gaudy numbers there. In only 58 games, he had 25 homers. He was the Southern League's most valuable player there that year. But the fans, he was demoted to AAA Tacoma in July, and that devastated the Huntsville fans there. And they they were very sad to to see him leave. But those are the kind of the politics of minor league baseball that a city uh, and fans and and a club has to adjust to, just the politics of minor league baseball, because it could be very, very fluid. The Huntsville Stars had a great run, first with the Athletics and then with the Brewers, and then they move, <laughs> what, about 10 years ago, they become the Biloxi Shuckers, and then the Mobile Bay Sharks, who then became the Bay Bears, they lose their franchise because it relocates back up to Huntsville a few years ago to become the Rocket City Trash Pandas. It never stops with minor league baseball. It's interesting, and I have a chapter in the book called Musical Chairs, because during uh, all this Shuffling when Larry Schmidt was trying to send this, this franchise to Huntsville, and then you have you have um, the Evansville franchise coming coming to uh, coming to Nashville, and the A's the A's Double A farmhands 
local farmhands came to Huntsville in 1985 because their contract in Albany, New York, the Albany Colony A's, that contract was uh, that, that contract expired, and that owner signed a contract with the Yankees. So a whole bunch of, of, of cross-franchise movement, as you mentioned, it, it never gets born in the minor league. Dale, appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Can't wait to finish your book. It's great, great to be on your show, Raymond. Thank you. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company. Dawson Iserlo, the producer extraordinaire, D'Lo, is back in the EFCO Development Studios, but yours truly is here in downtown Dallas. That's right, just a stone's throw away from where the women's Final Four will take place later today. LSU versus Virginia Tech. LSU trying to win its first Final Four game either for the men or the women. Remember, the women did win a national semifinal game back in the day in the mid to late 70s, but that was before the NCAA actually recognized women's athletics. So this would be the first NCAA Final Four win for either the men or the women. History could be made today later in Dallas. And to give us his thoughts on if history will be made or how it can be made, rather, or how it could be made, is the award-winning columnist from The Advocate. Our good friend Scott Rabelais joins us now here on RP3 and Company. Scott, good morning to you, brother. How are you? Good morning, Ray. Welcome welcome to Big D. The, yes. The stars are bright, especially here at the the Final Four. And, no, I, I did not cover uh, LSU, the LSU men's first Final Four trip in 1953. Uh, I was not around for that one. <laughs> you were you were not around for that one. I like that. I like that. Um, let, look, let, let's start with just just talking about the fact that here we are. You and I are both in Dallas to cover an LSU women's basketball game at the Final Four in year two of Kim Mulkey. Like this is year two. Brad, this never happens. It, th- these rebuilding projects usually take years to happen. She's been able to figure it out and has this team in the Final Four. How monumental of an achievement is that, comp- especially when you consider where this program was three years ago? Um, it, it, it's truly amazing. I mean, it, 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 nothing less than that. I mean, you thought – I thought, la- you know, last year – when she first got here, it said, okay – What's she going to do her first year? Well, she's Kim Mulkey. She's won 20 games every single year she's been a coach. She'll win 20 games and get to the tournament somehow. Well, they win 26 games. They finished second in the SEC. Lost in the second round of the tournament. Maybe that was a tiny disappointment, but but, but if you, you would have taken that before the, the start of the season. You go into this year, well, they're losing all these seniors. How are they going to get this back together? You know, they lost, uh, you know, four starters, including Kayla Pointer, who was their all, all SEC uh, you know, point guard uh, last season. And uh, the only one coming back is Alexis Morris. And, you know, how are they going to put this back together? She, yeah, the transfer portal certainly helped. LSU wouldn't have this team or be in this position without the transfer portal. But that's the rules everyone's playing with now. And here they are, 32-2. and two. 
in the national semifinals playing Virginia Tech tonight, and it's uh, it's utterly amazing, and it's it's because of the 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 talent and the force of will and the drive of Kim Mulkey. I mean, you know, she has, she has been the she's one of the highest level every single step of her career, going back to high school at Hammond High School when she was uh, when she won four straight state titles to Louisiana Tech to 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 Baylor. And now uh, here at LSU, and uh, it, it, just, it seems it seemed inevitable, but not th- inevitable this soon. And it's it's really a remarkable situation. And uh, the expectation from uh, from now on should at least be that LSU is going to advance in the tournament and have a shot to go to the Final Four every single year. Rab, is there a better coach, men or women, that has been able to adjust to the NCAA transfer portal era better than Kim Mulkey? I think it's a, a great question. I, I think, especially for someone her age, I, and I have to, I have to quickly mention Brian Kelly as well. You know, they're both about the same yes. age. You know, the, the Kim just turned sixty last year. Brian is about the same age, and and coaches who've done it a long time. You know, uh, you know, in, in what was a different era uh, before the pandemic, and now we have transfer portal and NIL. And to deal with, and she 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 talked about it a long time yesterday at the press conference about how she has assistant coaches deal with. I don't deal with that. I don't pay attention to any of that stuff. They deal with the NIL stuff, but she's on top of it. She she's she's got her hands and she has a grasp of what's going on. You know, I'm I'm sure of that. So, but no, she she's done remarkably well, I think, to to adjust at this point in her career because a lot of coaches. Are saying I've had it. I'm not dealing with uh, you know, older coaches. Say, I'm not dealing with this, and she still seems to have the same fire and passion and drive that she had, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when she was turning Baylor into a, a national power. So no, I mean other coaches have probably done it very well, but but no one uh, has probably done it better uh, than Kim Mulkey. And uh, no, to to this point, and, you know, she deserves a tremendous amount of credit, but. Uh, yeah, the transfer portal, it can be bad. It can, it can be good. And they're probably going to lose a couple of players despite all the success. They'll probably have a couple of players say, look, I'm not playing much. I'm going to go somewhere I can play. But I would figure, aside from the number one recruiting class they have coming in, led by Michaela Williams from, from uh, Parkway in Bossier City, um, they, they're going to have a couple more pretty high-profile transfers because I would imagine the, the, the interest in transferring to LSU is pretty high right now. You know, why, why – you know, there are a lot of there are other good programs too. But why wouldn't you want to come play for for her at LSU with the way they have it going on? Play with Angel Reese and some of these other players they have. What's the key in tonight's matchup against Virginia Tech for LSU to be able to win its first NCAA Final Four game? Well, it's uh, they're they're a good team. I, mean, I know they're, they're in their first ever Final Four uh, for the women. Uh, you know, they they um, have thirty one wins, uh, number one seed in in their regional. Uh, the key is going to be uh, they, they got to shoot it a little better. I, you know, I think I think they got to play a little better offense. LSU on the season has a better offensive average, but you know, remember that was early in the year when they were beating Bellarmine and the Mississippi Valley and, uh, and and Northwestern State scoring over 100 points a game. Um, LSU's got to be a little better, and obviously, this was the first game, the one against Miami, where they didn't. Uh, where they scored in the 50s, you know, uh, all, all year long. 
and, and they won because their defense and their rebounding has been so excellent. They're out rebounding their opponents in the in the tournament by about nine per game, uh, and, and and their defense has just been tremendous. I mean, you helped Michigan to their all time low in an NCAA tournament game. You helped two teams in the forties. I mean, you know, whoever you're playing, that's pretty darn good these days. So I think uh, I think LSU's got to get some offense going. I, I've said this all along, and, and I continue to say it. You obviously expect a double-double from Angel Reese. Why wouldn't you? She's only had two games this year where she didn't have a double-double. You expect scoring from Alexis Moore. She can create. She can hit shots outside. She can create and get to the line. they got to have that third player to produce offensively. Uh, Flo J. Johnson has to get untracked. Or you need another game from LaDasia Williams. Like maybe not, She doesn't have to do what she did against Utah, which she had like 23 points, uh, 24 points. But you got to get... You know, you know, a, a, she had a double double, ten and ten against Michigan, something like that. You need Jasmine Carson to come off the bench and hit some threes, and uh, and and give you that spark, uh, and and uh, you know, maybe she gets in the double figures, something like that, because uh, they're an excellent team. Georgia Amore, their guard outside, excellent shooter. She leads the NCAA tournament, uh, the whole tournament with twenty three pointers, so that's five, that's five per game. And of course, they have Elizabeth Kitely inside uh, the big center, who she also averages a double double for the year. She's an All American as well. So, I think LSU can can win the game, uh, but they're going to have to be better offensively. If they if we're saying uh, they just came up short, that's why it's because the offense still was struggling. Get you out of here with this, brother, because I know you got breakfast to eat, as do I. Who do you got tonight, and and why? Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, you know, I, want, I keep thinking, boy, this is tough for LSU. This is going to be a game, it seems like kind of like the Utah game, the regional semifinal, which LSU won by three. They were a very good team, and, and, and they were pretty evenly matched. I think these teams are pretty evenly matched. I have, I, I, Virginia Tech has come up, he said, their players have played together longer, but LSU's players have played together now for a good season, uh, part of the season. I, I, I think her coaching ability and, and experience – it helps get LSU over the edge. I, I, I'm giving LSU. Vegas has liked this team from the from the start. LSU was the was the the fifth choice uh, for a national championship. You know, in terms of the top contenders from the start of the tournament, and they've been a favorite all week over over Virginia Tech. A slight favorite. So I, I I I like LSU in a close game. And of course, the other semifinal, South Carolina and Iowa. Fascinating matchup. South Carolina, 36 and 0. Just been a great team all year long. The heavy favorite. But you got Caitlin Clark, the National Player of the Year for Iowa averaging 27 points a game and she can fill she can go P Maravich on on South Carolina and they can put a scare into it but you got to you got to figure South Carolina in the end is going to win so could be on a, a, a SEC final on on Sunday night uh, on Sunday afternoon rather Raven uh, LSU and South Carolina Rab appreciate your time brother I'll see you later on today my friend thank you so much Thanks Ray take care this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to the game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Uh. 
Poll question of the day on this special road tripping edition of RP3 and Company brought to you by Bailey Cigar Room. How far will the LSU women go in the Final Four? Once again, they take on Vitech tonight, just right down the road from where I'm at right now here in downtown Dallas. 51% of you say they're going to lose in the title game. They'll win tonight, but they'll advance to the title game on Sunday and lose there. 27% of you say they're going to win the whole thing. That's right, they're going to win the Natty. And 22% of you say they're going to lose in the semifinals. Thanks to all who voted on the poll question of the day. Thanks to all of you who also commented on the poll question of the day. We appreciate you making us part of your morning commute. And your morning. Mr. Green says, I think they'll win it all. They got embarrassed by South Carolina earlier in the year and haven't forgotten about that. But I have a feeling Iowa is going to surprise everyone. South Carolina 66, Iowa 63, LSU 64, Vatek 56, final, South Carolina 60, LSU 65. If I get this right, I'm going to get a FanDuel account. <laughs> oh, Jamie, Mr. Green Dawson going with full score predictions for both Final Four games and the title game. You like that detail. You certainly like the detail there. I do like that detail. Oh, man, I want to thank uh, all of our guests today. Uh, we had a great show. Thanks to James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast, of course. Thanks to author Dale Tafoya about his new book. And then, of course, Scott Rabelais from the Baton Rouge Advocate. For the producer extraordinaire who was extraordinary today, keeping things afloat while we had some technical difficulties early on, we didn't skip a beat. Shout out to you, Dawson. Thank you for that, brother. You were a rock star today. And thanks once again to Bailey Cigar Room for being the sponsor for this road trip to Big D for the women's Final Four. Reminder, LSU Vitek pregame begins at 5.30, tip at 6 o'clock, and you can listen to it live right here on the game later today. That's going to do it for today's show. We'll be back on Monday 6 to 9, maybe in the studio, maybe here in Dallas. We'll have to wait and find out. But until then, be safe out there, be kind to one another. Kevin Foote and Footnotes is up next right here on the game.